I'm Ethan Weiss, and you're listening to Best Known Method, a podcast where we ask some of the most successful people how they approach making life's most important decisions, all with less than perfect information to guide them. In my professional life, I'm a preventive cardiologist and scientist at UCSF. I'm also a co-founder and advisor to Keto, a technology company that enables weight loss through the ketogenic diet. Welcome to season two of Best Known Method. I want to take this brief opportunity to apologize about the length of time it's taken us to get back to your podcast app. I won't bore you with all the excuses, but suffice it to say that we have had our hands full. Highlights are that Keto is now Key Eats, and we have a number of really exciting new things coming, but I'll save that for later. Now back to today's episode. Emily Oster is an American economist and best-selling author. After receiving a BA and PhD from Harvard, Oster taught at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business and later moved to Brown University, where she holds the rank of Professor of Economics. I first heard of Emily on episode 376 of the Freakonomics podcast, titled The Data-Driven Guide to Sane Parenting. Emily was discussing her most recent book, Crib Sheet, A Data-Driven Guide to Better, More Relaxed Parenting, From Birth to Preschool. I was fascinated to learn of Emily's research and writing and reached out to see if she'd come on Best Known Method. Much to my joy, she said yes. We discussed health, behavior change, weight loss, and most of all, parenting. Emily's approach to developing a Best Known Method for parenting, which we agreed is both extremely necessary and also quite difficult. I thoroughly enjoyed my talk with Emily, and I'm sure you will too. So I always like to start off with where you came from, literally. Okay. I yeah. come from Connecticut. Okay. Uh, I was born in New Haven. My parents were professors at Yale. And I think I read in your book that your your parents were economists. They are. Both of them. Both of them. Still both active. Both of them. Still active. And, yes. And so you grew up in a home that was full of economics. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, particularly my mother, like me, sort of has an idea that like economics is about your your life and like your everyday life should be all about doing economics and using it to make your personal choices. So I think that I grew up with a lot of economics. Tell me a little bit about what they did or what they, they're still active. They're still in the faculty. Yeah, my mom. Yeah. Uh, so my mom just retired, although doesn't seem to have had any impact on what she's doing. Um, but so my mother is a, on the faculty at the business school at Yale and my my father is in the faculty at the economics department. So they were both just like being professors my whole childhood. And so then where, where did you end up going to college? I went to Harvard. And did you start, start studying economics when you were there? I did. So initially I thought I would do uh, science. And so I started thinking I would major in biochemistry and I don't know, be a medical researcher or maybe be a doctor. I'm not sure what I was exactly what I was thinking. And then I had this job the summer after my freshman year. I had two jobs. One was doing economics research for some uh, economist, a guy who works in education. So sort of doing like very basic economics kind of stuff for him. And then the other job I had, the main job I had was to work in a fruit fly lab. A guy was like doing stuff about fruit flies and I had like the sort of lowest level fruit fly job. So it was like dissect. I did a little bit of like dissecting of the fruit fly larvae brains and mostly I was like incinerating fruit flies, like transferring them to new tubes and then and then incinerating the old tubes. And after that, I just did economics. <laughs> it's it's like, amazing how the, we've figured out the perfect way to destroy any interest in science and young people. Yeah, it was. I think the thing is, it wasn't. I think I did recognize that, like, OK, this is like the lowest level job. But then I looked up at sort of like what what were the people who were like postdocs in the lab doing? What, and I was just like, oh, I like I don't really like lab work. And I I don't know, reflecting as an adult, I think I probably made that decision to rapidly in some sense. Like it was like, I took this one experience and was like, boy, I would never want to be in this lab and think like, okay, I guess I don't want to be a scientist, which probably is not quite right. What you just said is something I think we don't do well, well at all, which is to encourage people not to look at the moment, but to look at sort of what's this career going to look like in 20 or 30 years. Yeah, I think I looked forward probably not that far, but like far enough to see like basically it was going to be like college, grad school, postdoc. Like there was going to be a long time before I was in charge of the of the questions that I was asking. And I think that is not so true for for economics. So I think when you become an economist, you are basically sort of thinking about choosing your own questions as early as graduate school. You know, like our graduate students write their own papers. They're not like in my lab. They're not doing the stuff that I want. And I think that that, that aspect appealed to me. And I did not see that 
in the hard sciences. So, and I have gone through my life without taking a single economics course. I it's might really have given like, it it's is like a shame. shame. It is. Shame. And I, I, I love it. But so I don't know. I don't understand anything. I, I really understand very little. So tell me like you're finishing college and you're thinking about graduate school. And do you at that point start thinking about a different, an area within economics that you think you want to? So most people, when they enter graduate school, have some sense of whether they want to be like a more math oriented economist or somebody who works with data. But I think within that, most people don't have a good sense of what they want to do. And I certainly didn't. So I had a sense that like I was going to be somebody who worked with data and did questions around data. And I also had a sense that I was kind of interested in health stuff. But then once you're in graduate school, then you take some classes and you find faculty to work with. And then that kind of shapes shapes your interest. So and where did you go to graduate school? I went to Harvard again. You <laughs> stayed in Cambridge. Couldn't leave. And did you have to apply? Do you When you do that, do you do just apply generically to economics or do you apply to something like a particular no you apply generically to economics Um, and actually unlike in something like in sort of the hard sciences or in psychology or something you don't actually apply to a person so i think in a lot of these in some fields you'll like apply to somebody's lab and you're like accepted to work in somebody's lab economics is not like that you're accepted to be in the economics department and then the kind of matching with an advisor comes later and how many students are kind of in a typical first year class 30 30 yeah that's a lot. And then first year is basically all classwork. Yeah, just class, 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 class. And a lot that, of math. At that point, you're starting... Oh, it is. Yeah. So the first year of economics programs are like really, really math heavy. There's just a lot of like theory and, and econometrics and statistical theory and this theory, different theories. So many theories. And did you have to have... I mean, could you have come into it if you'd been an English major? Would you have had to... You, you need to be reasonably good at math. I mean, I was like at the very bottom of the acceptable level of math. Like the first year was extremely hard for me. I passed, but barely. And it was a combination of math and statistics and advanced statistics. Yeah, it was more the math is more the like the sort of theoretical math, proof based mathematics, which is not something I did a lot of or have ever done a lot of. The statistics I'm better at. And were the faculty mostly economists or are they mathematicians or kind of no? They're economists. Yeah, yeah. And so one year of classwork, and then you start to kind of think about what you want to do. Then you do more in the second year. You typically do more classwork, and but more in like the fields that you want to study. And so then you know if you were like me, not going to be a theoretical mathematician economist, um, you would start working with data and sort of looking at kind of studying subfields of economics. And then also at that point, ideally start doing research. And that's like the second year. And then after that, you just do research. So, and what did you end up doing your research in? My research was uh, mostly about uh, development economics, health and development. So like HIV in Africa was a sort of topic that I started with. And Mostly, again, staying within the economics department. Did you branch the School of Public Health or? So my work at that point and still was sort of has some overlap with public health, although my advisors were all in the economics department. Okay. And then you you found a dissertation advisor and started working on your yep, thesis? that's it. And was that your thesis topic as well? Yep. Yeah. yeah. HIV, what was it exactly? So my dissertation... It was about, you do multiple papers. And so one of them was just about sort of understanding variation across places in uh, in Africa and sort of trying to understand the differences in HIV rates and like basically using some modeling to some simulation modeling to figure out what could explain differences across these places and in the rates of HIV. And And the second one, which is sort of much more about like economics, was about looking at why people don't change their sexual behavior in response to HIV. So there's this sort of stylized fact that basically like sexual behavior, like risky rates of risky sexual behavior were pretty consistent over time uh, in Africa, even in the face of, you know, basically when you have sex now, there's like a good chance that you're going to die. And the question of like why that was and sort of trying to make the argument that some of that was about the fact that the other risks of death were very high. So like the baseline risk of mortality is much higher than it is elsewhere. And so if you're, you know, living in the U.S. and you don't get HIV, like you can expect to live until 80. But if you're living in, you know, Botswana and you don't get HIV or even, you know, Burkina Faso, what other these places, the chance that you die from something else is higher. The life expectancy is lower and that that impacts people's uh, incentives. So that's interesting. And is that observed? I mean, are there differences? Like if you look at sort of populations in the U.S. where, you know, rates of HIV infection are still pretty high, do you see a difference in behaviors? In that paper, I argue that that is supported in the data across places in in Africa. It is an argument that's come up some in the U.S., although again, you know, now like HIV is the sort of experience of what happens if you get HIV or AIDS, even in Africa is very different than it was. I mean, this was, you know, in 2002 or something before antiretroviral is really significant in Africa in particular. 
Because it was a death sentence and now it's not. Yeah. Exactly. And so do you think some of the risky behavior comes back because there isn't that sort of idea? I think we've seen some of that. Yeah. Um, and we've seen some of that in the U.S. also in the in different communities of sort of like HIV becoming less of a something to be feared and as a result, less something to be avoided. To me, like one of the fascinating things is how we human beings perceive future risks and how we change our behavior in anticipating those risks and how it's very difficult when the risk is far off in the distance. Um, all right. So then you got a faculty job. Your first faculty job was at university of Chicago. Yes. And which is like the Mecca of economics. It was a nice place. Yeah. Okay. But I mean like more Nobel prize. I mean, I'm not yeah. saying this. Everywhere. Nice to you. Every, no, no. Yeah. They're everywhere. They're, everyone has a Nobel prize. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, that was intimidating or fun or definitely. Both. Yeah. Both. Yeah. Um, you know, so I worked at Chicago. I was, uh, I worked for a little time in the economics department and then I, for a longer time in the business school, and it was, uh, yeah, it was both intimidating and fun. I mean, it's a super, super intense place, uh, where everybody is like really into economics and where, you know, no, everyone is only as good as their last quarterly journal of economics publication. And so it can, it can be sort of intense and it can be intense in a good way. It can be intense in a, in a scary way, but it was a productive place to work for sure. And did you meet your husband there? No, I met my husband in college. In college? Yeah. And so you guys went through this whole economics thing together? Yeah. Now, did you bring him to economics or the other way? No, around? no, no. I mean, I think we were both, I think by the time we met in college, we were both kind of into economics, but he was like more into it than, I mean, he, he was, we met, um, I was a junior, he was a senior. He was already like planning to go to graduate school and, and I was probably planning to do that too. And we sort of did it together. And so then you guys had to get a job together mm -hmm. and you both got a job at UC. Yes. That's impressive. It was exciting. That's impressive. I mean, I think it's, it's easier that it's hard to coordinate. It's easier in economics than it would be in something like English where like there was only one job every seven years. And so, you know, in economics, like every year, most places are hiring. And so getting two jobs was still hard. So, and then you got this idea somewhere along the way that you wanted to write books, which I guess some of you guys just do. That's just part of the the job in some ways or this is a pretty unusual thing to do for an economist um economics is not a book field and so it, it is really an, like an art like we write articles and this kind of book is really not because it's more popular yeah because it's popular it's not like a you know people do write these books where they like kind of staple together their their papers and like put them in a book and i think that that is a thing that people do it's not super common but it is something that happens um this thing of writing you know, obviously Steve Levitt wrote wrote one, you know, Dick Thaler, Richard Thaler wrote wrote a book. So there are people who do this, but it's not like a regular thing. Especially for like a young person. Especially for like an untenured yeah. woman. Right. Yeah, that's right. So the first one was about pregnancy, right? Mm -hmm. And you started writing that when you got pregnant? Oh, yeah. 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 And was this basically like, this experience is wild and I need to share with the world yeah. or I want to dig in and tell everyone how I approached all these Yeah, problems? I think it was sort of both of those things. I mean, I think I sort of couldn't, like I couldn't believe how much this experience was not the thing that I thought it was going to be. You know, I'd sort of understood like, okay, I'm a little neurotic, like probably I'm going to do some of my own research, but like the extent to which that was true, like I just couldn't, like I couldn't believe it. And, and yeah, I just started kind of writing and I always have sort of liked the um, challenge of trying to dissect like academic work for an audience that does not have the jargon. And I, so I just started doing that and kind of writing and, then it's sort of, I don't know. What was the quote, the thing that kind of really captured you? Prenatal testing. Oh, that was so like my biggest. So I think I spent so much time with this first book talking about like alcohol and coffee. And like, I honestly, like I could take it, you know, I like a cup of coffee. Like, you know, that's fine. I think that's that research is interesting. But the place I started was in the prenatal testing because, you know, I was 31. This was, you know, now like nine years ago. So the options there were this kind of, were like doing something invasive um, which carried some risk of miscarriage and or doing this like kind of neck measurement stuff, which uh, the non-invasive options were not that informative. I mean, they were somewhat informative. They weren't that informative. And I was just like, I remember going, they were like, okay, like, um, well, you're, you know, you're only 30. So we're going to do this neck measurement thing. And we're not going to do this other thing. And I was like, well, you know, like I want to talk about, and they were like, well, that's what we recommend. And I was like, but I, like, I want to talk about the other option. And they were like, well, we don't recommend that for you. I was like, okay, but like, why not? It was like, well, because you're only 30. I was like, it can't possibly be like, you know, and then, and then it, it sort of felt like I only have like a minute to make this decision because it was like, by the time I had this, this first prenatal visit, we were like one week away from when I would have needed to get the invasive testing. 
And so I, I felt like I just didn't have the the language to have this interaction about like what was the right thing to do. And so I spent all this time like looking at the data, trying to figure out like, are the miscarriage rates they're quoting me right? Are the risks right? How should I think about this decision? And so I think that was the really the thing that captured me. And also where I realized that like this, the, the kind of way that an economist would think about this, weighing risks and benefits and multiplying by probabilities and thinking about preferences, that that was sort of very different than the way that that the decision seemed to be, the recommendation seemed to be formed. Isn't it amazing? It's amazing. I mean, and it hasn't that hasn't changed. No. And by the way, it's no different for me being a doctor. We went through the same exact thing. In fact, we had, a, I can't remember, it was like the triple screen or something, right? So my wife was 32 when she was first pregnant and the triple screen was messed up. And so they said, well, you need to get an amnio. And we went through this whole same, yeah. and the nuchal, you know, the whole Yeah, the nuchal, this, yeah. But that time, I'll never forget because... Of course, like we're having all this done at my institution where I'm on the faculty. And I think it was like a Friday that she has her amnio and she's like, all right, I want the results. I'm like, oh, it'll be two weeks. And she was like, that's impossible. That's absolutely impossible. And she basically badgered them into doing some more expensive test that would get her the result on Monday. But it actually, I didn't know we were going to end up talking about this, but it ended up, it it sort of prefaced something that was going to happen later with our second kid about genetics that I think is so fascinating because you really are not prepared for the decision at all. I mean, this, the process of it is ridiculous, but then the decision, no one sits you down to ask you, well, what are you really going to do? And have you thought about what this would be? What would life be like with a kid with X, Y, or Z condition? And what would you do? And we have, I won't bore you with the whole long story, but we have a daughter who has a genetic condition that's left her legally blind. And we went through this, you know, horror show when we found out that she had it after she was born and at that moment, it re- occurred to me that if we'd known that information before she was born, she probably wouldn't be here today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, now she's 13 and like an amazing, you know, just human being and makes everyone's life better around her. And so I think a lot about that. I think about the fact that we just don't communicate this at all. We, we don't communicate at all. The risk part of it is one thing, right? Because you can't actually turn that relatively into something people can understand, but they can't understand what they don't know. Yeah. And they can't. And I think, you know, of of course, like in that decision, the question of, okay, like then you're going to be faced with a choice and you need to think about like, are you, you know, if you, if you are expecting a kid with a chromosomal problem, you know, are you going to terminate or are you going to, you know, are you going to go forward and what is that going to look like? And, you know, thinking about like, how costly do you, do you find that? And, you know, what, like, how is your family going to, be able to cope or not cope with that is just like something nobody ever talks about. It's just like, oh, everybody tell you this probability and we're going to kind of like abstract away from like why that probability is relevant. Yeah. And you had your experience of having the people around you kind of show that they were operating from a cookbook and not thinking about it was disturbing. And I think we see that a lot in medicine. Yeah. And I think, you know, I had, it's sort of interesting. I had this, this experience with the first kid when I had my second you know, and at that point, to be fair, I had already written a book about pregnancy. But I had, I think, a really pretty different medical ex- experience. And I don't know how much of it was sort of, I came in with like more of a sense of what I wanted. But like my, it was just like a much more, a much more interactive experience where like there was much more discussion. Um, and it was much, it was much better for me. Were you, so you were more satisfied by the quality of the data or you felt like you had a better, better grasp or the people you were talking about? No, I think grasp? I had a better provider. Ah. I had like a totally different, ah. because we, by then we had moved from right. Chicago to, to Providence. And so when I got pregnant with my son, I had a different, I had a midwife, um, like in a, in a kind of obstetrics practice. Um, and it was just a very different experience. So, and the second book, for those of you who haven't read it, it's called Crib Sheet. It's about during the hospital. There's some great chapters actually about the, in the hospital. Actually, before we get into the book, I got the impression from talking to you before we got together today that these books are not really representative of your active research program. Yeah, I think that that's sort of true. Um, although I, I reflected more after we talked. Um, I think that they, they reflect my research program more than I, than I sort of think about. So right now, a lot of my research is about, uh, like what we can learn from data and the limits to kind of how we can learn about causal relationships. Uh, and so actually at the moment, a lot of my work is about how people respond to medical recommendations about, say, their diet. Uh, and the fact that like the kinds of people who respond to those recommendations are different from the kinds of people who don't. And that's part of why it's so hard to learn from. 
uh, from these kind of observational studies, which is a lot of what I talk about in my book. So I think I'm trying to do things where in some ways I'm motivated by some of the problems I see in the literature that I'm talking about in the books, but then the research is really about methods. Okay. Well, I do want to come back to all that stuff, but I want to go through a few things. The first thing you already just mentioned, this is basically about teasing out causality. And I think that's something that we all want to do. And it's, um, it's hard to do in the absence of sort of what we would consider to be gold standard level evidence. And it's sort of the basis for what we're trying to talk about here and what I'm trying to do with my life. So I guess let me start by asking, why is it hard for, or in your opinion, why do you think it's hard for people to understand causality that, that maybe, um, not everything, not every relationship is causal. I mean, I think in your in your lived experience, what you see is correlations. So I think that the idea that like when I look at kids and they are treated differently, you know, that that then their outcomes differ, that's very visceral. And it is it is then easy to sort of go from that kind of anecdote correlation into a causal relationship. In general, anecdote is very powerful and, and kind of lived experience is very, is very powerful for everybody, not just, you know, lay people, but I think for, for all of us. And so I think that, that makes it difficult for people to learn from data, period. And then, you know, trying to separate within data, is there, is this a causal relationship? Have I really adjusted for all of the other different things that are different about these people? I think that's, it's just very hard for, to explain why there are such big differences in the quality of evidence across different kinds of studies. So do you think it relates, I hadn't thought about this, but do you think that part of the problem is that people's lives are a series of anecdotes? And so they, in their everyday lives, ascribe causality to certain things like, oh, I you know, didn't sleep well last night. It must be because I had that glass of wine. And that that then bleeds into their superficial understanding of data. Definitely. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think we're all like sort of very driven by by anecdote and then it is hard to understand that that is one piece of data that is one data point in you know inside a lot of other and it shouldn't get any more weight than any other data point and yet it does and do you think there's a hope for helping people to understand i mean even just the sort of you did a nice job in the book of walking through the different levels of evidence do you think there's any hope that this would become like something people would learn in high school and I mean, maybe they do now. I mean, no, I think that would be amazing. I mean, I do, you know, I don't think people learn this in high school. And I do think that to be like a, in a world in which data, we're going to spend all this time talking about like, you know, data, this data, that data is so important, blah, blah, blah. We should spend some time teaching people like, what are some things we can learn from data and what can we not? Because I, this is very poorly understood. And so this false connection between anecdote and outcome, the causality thing has led to some pretty prominent examples of things where that have come off the rails. Like the biggest one you discussed at length in the book was the, was the vaccine thing. And I think, you know, that's sort of a great example, right? I take my kid to get a vaccine and an hour later, they stop moving. That has to be the cause. Is there any way to overcome that? I mean, it's so powerful. It is so powerful. And I, I you know, I, I mean, sometimes in case of something like vaccine, I often think that we need to like that those of, I mean, so the book suggests that vaccines are a good idea. Um, and I sometimes think in that case, like those of us who believe in vaccines need to fight back with the same kind of anecdotal, even though I'm like so loath to say it, that like we basically need to use anecdote against them because it's because anecdote is so powerful in a way that like, you know, so I think we should be spending more time telling people like, here's somebody who got pertussis. Like, here, like here's, a, here's what happened to this person. Like their kid got measles. Like, let's put that out there. Let's like have people talk about that. My kid got measles. Vaccines are tough because there are these other things that sort of bleed into it, like the herd immunity bit, right? Like that you're not just trying to protect your own kid, which I think most people would probably understand, but you're actually trying to protect other people's kids. Like that's something. And then this choice thing, I think is makes, makes for these like weird political bedfellows, right? Where it's like, you know, these States where they're getting rid of the exemptions. Like there's a big fight in California now over this. Uh, and the governor, who's, I would think, a pretty thoughtful and progressive guy, basically made them back off this new law that was going to basically get rid of the ability for people to get exemptions from anyone other than the state. Yeah, no, I mean, I think in, in this is a very odd place where, you know, you have these these kind of groups. It's like highly sort of very highly educated, like very informed people. And also, you know, on the other side, people who are kind of not very highly educated kind of coming together and both of them don't like uh, don't like vaccines. Usually when we look at health behaviors, like more education buys you better health behaviors on almost every other dimension, not this one. Well, so that's an interesting 
point because I, I think there's some parallels between one that I think about a lot, which is about cholesterol, particularly statins, you know, these cholesterol drugs have taken on a sort of similar flavor. And I got in a lot of trouble because we wrote an op-ed piece. I wrote one with a nutritionist based in London. And we basically at the end of it sort of without saying it suggested that a lot of the feeling of this of this argument was the same as the vaccine debate. Mm-hmm. And of course, everybody you know went crazy and said, well, we're not anti-vaxxers. But the truth is there were more parallels than not. And of course, by the end of this response, like it took a while, but then all of a sudden, like the whole anti-vax the Venn diagram circles actually do overlap a lot. Yeah. Uh, so it's something I think about in my daily practice because I have patients who will come to me, you know, with all this information they've gotten off the internet about how these medicines that have been proven pretty unequivocally to save lives are going to make them, you know, their limbs fall off. And it's really hard to undo that. I think you were, there was one line in here that you said something about how it's very difficult to, oh, hard to disprove a relationship. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think, you know, people, people come, you know, with the vaccines and they'll say like, you know, I think that vaccines cause MS. There's no evidence for that. Like, I don't know why you would think that. And then it's like, well, you know, I, but there's no evidence to disprove it. It's like, well, I guess that's, I guess there's a sense in which that's, that's true. Um, and even in places where you have like a, where you have what I think is like incredibly compelling data. So for example, I had a conversation with someone about the autism vaccine link and they were like, you know, well, that the, what about that link? And I was like, well, like just to give you one example, from things that have come out in the last year, you know, there's a study of like, you know, 700,000 kids in Denmark, which shows that, you know, kids who are vaccinated are actually less likely to have autism than kids who are not vaccinated. And they said, well, but in Denmark, they give the first vaccines at three months and here we give them at two months. So I don't really see that that evidence is relevant. And it's like, I, I, I don't know why that would make the evidence any less, more relevant, le- less relevant. You know, it isn't, nobody is suggesting that it's the giving the vaccines at two months that is relevant for autism. In fact, the particular vaccine that people cite, everybody gives at the same time. And so in some sense, like there's nothing that would lead that to be a, a reasonable thing. But I guess like, can I disprove that? I guess I guess not. And even if I did, even if I showed you evidence from someplace where they give vaccines at the same time, you, you know, there's going to be some other argument that I can't that I can't disprove. And I think that's part of what's sort of frustrating. Like, I don't know, we don't have perfect data. We haven't like vaccinated your kid and not vaccinated them. So that's it. We don't, we don't have perfect data on this. It, I, I recently interviewed Roger McNamee, who wrote this book about um, Facebook, and he talks about filter bubbles. And he, we, we didn't get into talking about vaccines, but basically people will end up kind of self-selecting people around them who will have their same beliefs, which just reinforce them. So it makes undoing this almost, I mean, it seems to me like it's almost impossible. Yeah, I agree. Which is ter- terrible. Terrible. And it's going to get worse. Yeah. Although, I mean, I think, you know, it sort of leads you to the view that like basically all we can do is just like make it, you know, mandate, just like do things that are mandates, which of course I don't really like as, I don't like, you know, I like to force people to do stuff, but maybe the only choice. Yeah. But, you know, we mandate, it's interesting because we mandate seatbelts and seatbelts are, uh, I think I like to think about things like things that will impact me and my family versus things that will impact the people around me. So like vaccines are something that will impact me, but also people Mostly around, people around you. Right. Seatbelts just impact me, right? right? If I get in a car accident, I choose not to wear a seatbelt and I die, then what that's on me. But the two that I think really where you see there's this like, you know, innocent bystander effect are vaccines and also cigarette smoking. We've obviously regulated cigarette smoking. So mm-hmm. I think you're probably right. I think for vaccines, there's just going to have to be, suck it up. If you decide you don't want to take a cholesterol pill, great. Yeah. You know, that's your choice. That's I mean, too bad for you, but like work, work on it okay. with your insurance company. Right. You exactly. guys can figure it out together. <laughs> um, all right. There was another, um, these were just sort of like bits that I picked up from the book. So one of them was that you said something about how, uh, data can't answer everything. And I think, um, we have, um, different levels of evidence quality ranging from sort of the lowest, you know, so observational, you know, case control stuff just, or anecdotes, I guess would probably be the lowest up to, you know, randomized control trials, which have their own flaws and imperfections. But so there's that. But then there are things where we have no data other than just anecdotes. So how would you as an economist operator advise, maybe advise your kids to operate in a world where there is just no data? There's not been a trial to compare X versus Y. Yeah. I mean, I one of the things I talk about in in those contexts is that, you know, we probably want to to have some, try to use some logic, try to, you know, use some just what do you think is the is the answer to this and that there's a that structuring that in a particular way so rather than just being like i'm going to do the thing that i want actually thinking about like what do you what what else in the world could tell you something about 
about this that might be helpful. So it's, I talk about this some in the context of like television or screen time, where I think our evidence is pretty limited, you know, particularly around things like apps, like we don't really know, like we haven't had it for long enough. We don't, we don't really know. Maybe we have a little bit of evidence around TV, but again, like pretty limited. And so you say, okay, well, you're just gonna have to like do what you think is right. Well, okay, but you can structure that a little more. You can say like, for example, thinking about my prior, I would say if eight hours of TV a day, it seems like that's probably too much. Because if your kid's watching eight hours of TV and they're sleeping for nine hours a night, there's really not a lot of time to do other things. Um, so probably that's too much. On the other hand, does anyone really think that having your kid watch 45 minutes of television twice a week while you make dinner, does anyone really think that's terrible, assuming you're curating the TV? I think that most people would say, yeah, you know, you're right. Maybe not everybody, but I think most people would say, you're right, that probably isn't the thing that's going to make your kid a serial killer watching, you know, 45 minutes of Caillou so you can take a shower. Okay, so now we've structured a little bit. Now we're somewhere between 45 minutes, three times a week and eight hours a day. Now that's a pretty wide range, but maybe you could use the same kind of logic to kind of like narrow it in a little bit. And then both that is helpful in some sense from a research standpoint, because you might say, okay, well, now I can I can narrow the questions that I want to ask in in research or the things that I want to find out from the data. But I think it also helps in actually making the decision because I think that it at least gives you some bounds on what you think is a kind of a reasonable choice. Well, and I think you did a really nice job of explaining. I think you put it that there's two main inputs, right? Data are one input, but that preferences are an input as well. And that that has to play some role, especially yeah. for these kinds of things, right? Like yeah. you say, I mean, to some people, 45 minutes of TV twice a week is probably, you know, ghastly, but to others, it's like, yeah, I'm going to take a shower. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think you have to think about like, you know, is your like and what else would you do at that time? Like, you know, is this 45 minutes that you're going to be like pro productively spending, like talking to your kid and like learning about their life? Or are you just going to be yelling at them because you're tired and telling them, like, don't watch me in the shower? So then coming back to how we communicate as, say, healthcare providers or doctors or whoever it is, um, you know, there's this sort of thing that's all the rage now in medicine called shared decision making, which I think is somewhat this. Right. I mean, basically, look, here are the data. Let's talk together through about sort of what this means, what the weight of the evidence is and what it means. And then you come to a decision. I'm here to be your guide, not to tell you what to do. Is that the kind of thing you can see working in some of these areas too? Yeah, I think I think you can. I mean, I think we need to be careful in those settings to help people understand the data in a way that they find accessible. So I think it it is when we quote Data that comes directly out of a paper is often not accessible to people. It's quoted in odds ratios, but actually what people care about is like absolute risk, not relative risk. And so telling people, you know, there's the, if you choose this, there's twice the risk of death is like different if the baseline risk of death is, you know, one in a thousand than if it's, you know, one in 50,000 or if it's one in 10. And so I think we need to be thoughtful about how we communicate those kind of risks. And there probably needs to be more emphasis paid on doing shared decision-making without a shared framework for talking about probabilities or talking about preferences is not, is not going to be as helpful. Well, that's a, a, a good transition. So I think I like your idea. I mean, you absolutely have to do both, right. In some ways, right. I mean, you can't, people are always saying, Oh, it's absolute risk. It's relative risk. And in my opinion, I think the conversation needs to involve both. I mean, you can say, look, the relative risk is increased by two, but the absolute risk is 0.01. I mean, the chance is greater yeah. that you're going to get struck by lightning. So in some ways you can discount that and not pay too much attention to it. But I agree, we have to do a better job of communicating in a way that people can access it and understand it. And so where does that come from? Does that come from training the professionals better? Because like, as you say, there's a difference between the way we publish studies in the way that we then have to communicate them to the public. For one thing, we could do more research on the question of what is the right way to communicate these probabilities, right? Like what is a way that would help people actually understand probabilities? I don't think there's much work on that. And, you know, I I often use language around like risks that I think people are familiar with or risks that maybe they're take they are probably taking without thinking about it. So I often talk about car accidents as a sort of like, you know, you're getting in your car every day. And so that means that you are taking some risks. And you must think that that your reveal preference is that that is a risk that you're comfortable with. And so that's something people sort of understand the idea that cars are risky, but they also understand that it's something that you do. And so I sometimes try to use that as a, as a benchmark, but I don't really know whether that's helpful. That's a good one. I've heard this. I've heard the other one that says your risk of dying in a surfing accident is lower than your risk of driving to the beach, which I think is sort of a similar idea, yeah. right? Like that, you know, sort of on an absolute level. The problem, of course, people will then push back. Smart people will push back and say, well, I have to drive. Yeah. I don't have to serve. Right. That's uh, true. But you don't. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think people, I mean, people have been it's like, okay, you have to drive. But, you know, you that's not really true. Like you could, you know, not 
go places or live next year. I mean, I don't drive that much, you know, not for this reason. Because you live close to work. We happen to just live yeah. close to work, yeah. Well, that's nice. Well, so I want to talk a little bit more about preferences. You had one line in the book that I thought was just absolutely hilarious, where it's about the lady on the internet doesn't know what's best for your kid's penis. Yeah, that's uh, true. And so I think, you know, maybe we could spend a couple of minutes talking about the information that people get online, which um, obviously some of it is good and some of it not so good. Yeah, I think the issue with online is that, you know, there's there's a kind of good piece of the the sort of social media, like ability to search things on the Internet, which is that it is easy to find people who share your experiences. And partly, particularly when you're a new parent, like there's this sort of overwhelming feature of like I am alone in my house with this baby and it like I cannot believe how hard this is. And so it is nice to have a bigger tent of people to be like, I am totally like, you can do this. Like, I'm totally also suffering. Like, you're not alone. I think that part of it is great. The thing that that comes along with that, though, is that is that you get people, there's more people to tell you their opinions about things. And you get these like Facebook discussions, particularly around these hot topics like breastfeeding or sleep, you know, sleep training or sleep, like co-sleeping, where, you know, you'll have kind of half the people are like, you know, co-sleeping is like, I totally did and everyone should do it. And that's how you know that you love your kid is like everybody's in the family bed. That's the best. And then other people who are like, if you do this, your kid will die for sure. It's like, okay, well, this can't both be right. Um, You know, and it's, and it's hard to parse that. And I think then people are like, okay, I'm going to go online. I'm going to like find out what the data says. But there isn't one answer in the sense that not every study shows exactly the same thing. But how do you aggregate those studies? How do you like figure out which of them are good? That's very hard. And I think people get sort of down this rabbit hole and then they can't like extricate themselves. So it's interesting because we had kids before. I mean, there was obviously internet, but there was no Facebook. So we did what I think what people had done forever, which is talk to our friends and family, which is sort of self-selected in some ways. Like we didn't get that sort of diversity of opinions. Um, So really, I guess this is a skill that people need now that they didn't need before, which is how do you how do you aggregate all the information on the Internet or how do you learn how to filter out what seems? Yeah, but I think we could also I think I think a lot of times when we're talking to people about their parenting, either on the Internet or in like in person, people are actually not trying to be as bossy as they sound. But once you have made a choice. You, it's kind of easy for for advice like, hey, this is what worked for me to turn into like, this is what worked for me because it's right. And you should do it too because it's right. You know, and it's like, well, I, I think we could be more careful. And it's something I've thought a lot about now that I'm a person who people ask for parenting advice about being sort of careful to say, you know, here's something that worked for me, but it's not obviously going to work for you. And, and as opposed to saying like, here's this thing that worked for me, which is what you should do. Um, That's interesting. I hadn't thought about this before, but I stopped eating beef like 20 years ago for a completely random reason that really wasn't totally health related. But when I go out to dinner, of course, the conversation would come up from time to time or if we went to a dinner party and somebody was going to make like hamburgers or beef or something, I'd have to say, I don't eat that. And I think it carried an enormous amount of, even though I never, yeah, I'm a cardiologist. (laughs) cardiologist. I never, ever once would say like, you shouldn't eat beef. Beef is bad. Like I would never, ever Although I didn't let my kids eat it, which I think said something. Yeah. Um, but but people would like, you know, get really upset because they think like by just my action, I, I was saying so much. That's a fascinating. I hadn't even thought about it. Well, let's talk. We already talked about this a little bit, but I want to talk a little bit about, about effect size because I think it comes back to this conversation about sort of understanding risk and magnitude of risk. Is it just really about conveying that to people? I mean, is there a way to convey it in a way that makes sense to people? Is, do you have to make an analogy? Like, do you have to say like show the number of dots on a, I don't know, there's pictures where you can. I don't know. I think, I think comparing it to things people understand is helpful. I mean, part of the issue is with probabilities. I think that most people kind of have an idea of sort of things being like always, sometimes never. And, you know, sometimes a pretty big range and, you know, you can kind of get people to understand like sometimes most of the time, sometimes not a lot of the time, but really conveying the difference between one in a thousand and one in 10,000, like those numbers are very hard for us to access like an understanding of because you don't see something happen one in a thousand times. And so how do you help people see that, see that difference? I think we don't, I think we don't know. And the same goes for effect sizes. Like how do you understand that something is small? What does that mean? Small. Yeah. And then as we talked about before, uh, it gets even more complicated when the, you know, where the the risk or the benefit happens a long time from now, right? Small in the future. Do you think gambling helps? Like in some ways I, I love the word hedge. Um, I've been using it a lot and sort of trying to approach, trying to convey information to people. 
I don't know. It seems like people, like everybody inherently understands gambling. Like they understand buying a lottery ticket mm-hmm. versus, you know, betting $10 on a roulette wheel. Yeah, I think that could help. I think that those, but again, this is the kind of thing like we need, you know, we need evidence on like what of these things is effective. And there's no one out there doing this? I don't think there's, I mean, I, I'm sure like there's right. somebody doing everything, right. um, but I don't think that this is like a major sort of research program and certainly not in like medical. I mean, you think like basically there should be some people studying like medical decision making for whom this is a big piece of like, how do we help people make the right decisions? So how would you structure it? You basically do an RCT where you present it in, you know, multiple different ways and see what people's comprehension is. Yeah. I think that what's hard about that is exactly how do you measure comprehension, right? You wouldn't want to do it in the context of a medical decision because there isn't like a right choice. You want to somehow like sort of do it in a way that then they have to make a choice where there is something that's, that's right, but which is, it's not just like, can you multiply these two numbers, you know? Yeah. You wouldn't want to be like, it's one in a thousand, it's, you know, it's just a thousand dollars. What is the expected value? Like, that's not the test you want, but you want something where like somehow you're going to get at that. But I don't know if this, this isn't, I don't think it's super obvious how you do this. And is this the kind of thing that you would do? Like, is this, um, no, no. that's not my space. What are your, like, ex- what's a typical experiment look like for you? Or do you do, do any experiments? experiments? You don't do experiments. You just analyze the existing right. data. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll take a data set and you'll say, I want to look through this and figure out what I can find out. Yeah. I mean, lately, most of what I've been doing is like, you know, looking at data and seeing like why observational studies are bad. But yeah, I don't do experiments. I mean, I have done experiments, but not I not in a, not in a while. Okay. Let's talk about this because this, this, I've been saving this one because this one to me brings together a lot of the things that we've been talking about. And you just so mentioned this idea that observational data is bad. So the peanut story to me was the most interesting story in your whole book. I love that story. It's a great story because, well, why don't you tell the story? I'm not going to tell the story. The question of the peanut story is, is, should you expose your kids to peanuts early? And when my uh, older daughter was born and probably when your kids were born, like the, the thing was like, don't expose them to peanuts until they're like a year or two years. Like they're going to because it could make them allergic if they have them too, too early. And so there's this guy who's like a researcher in the UK and he's doing he's like at some point notices, I guess, that kids in Israel don't have many peanut allergies or like his friends who have kids in Israel don't have don't have so many peanut allergies. And so he does this like observational study where he just compares kids in Israel to Jewish kids in the UK. And he sees the kids in Israel have are much less likely to have peanut allergies. And then he and then he attributes them. He writes this paper where he says it's because they expose them to this peanut snack. Bomba. There's this like Israeli peanut snack that kids like to eat uh, when they're very, when they're very, it's like a sort of good early first food in, in Israel. And he says like, that's why they're not allergic. And so this is the kind of thing where like, I spent all this time in the book being like, that's like, you know, can you possibly learn from this? Like you're, you're comparing kids in Israel, to kids in the UK, like the fact that you just did Jewish kids in the UK, like that doesn't really fix your problems, you know, thanks. But then he did. And this is where I think this is kind of like the platonic ideal of what we think evidence production should be like. It's like you have a suggestive hypothesis, you like learn something from existing data, and then you go and actually do something which is much bigger and and more rigorous. And so in his case, he did this big randomized trial where they actually exposed some kids to peanuts and some not. And, and you know, he was exactly right. Like the effects are enormous. I mean, the thing that's mostly so that I find so striking about that is how big, like how large those effects are. I mean, the reductions in peanut allergies, like 70, 80 percent which is just not an effect size that we see in medicine very frequently. No, it's right? amazing. No, never, ever. Never, never. That's a gr- th- That story to me is great because I think what you have is you have the first decision by whoever it was who decided the peanuts were going to cause kids to have allergies, right? There. So when my kids grew up, were absolutely like, and because there was so much peanut allergy, like they couldn't bring anything no, that smelled like a peanut to school. Right. Like it was really, and there were peanut free classrooms and, you know, and look, I mean, there are some kids who have terrible allergies. Sure. Yeah. Right. It's not, I mean, yeah. once you have a peanut allergy, yeah. this isn't yeah. like a made up allergy. Yeah. I mean, yeah. You'll get really sick. But anyway, someone made the decision or some group of people made the decision that the data suggested that it, exposure to peanuts at a young age increased your risk of developing peanut allergies. They made that decision ostensibly based on some data. Yeah, right? I, I was never able to figure out what that data was. Right. And then you made this great point in your book. So here comes this guy, Gideon Lack, and he does this observational study that we'd all laugh at, right? You yeah, laughed at I, it. Absolutely. And yet, and so if we just pretend there's no RCT, and then he went on to do the RCT, which is phenomenal, and we should all aspire to want to do that in yeah. everything that we do, but it's Amazing, not, right? not going to happen. No. So, But in the absence of that, what can we learn from the first two, like, can we go back and do an autopsy on the first group of people who got together to write the guidelines that their conclusion was peanuts cause allergies and compare what they saw versus what he saw? Because 
mostly we're going to operate in this world where we don't have the RCTs. My guess, I mean, it would be interesting to do that. My guess is that even his observational evidence is substantially better than what they had when they made these guidelines. Because my guess is these guidelines started from sort of some kind of vague suggestion of this, coupled with a sort of like, we want to wait until, to expose kids until later because then like, you know, if you have a one-year-old with an allergic reaction, that's like sort of feels safer than a four-month-old because it's like less scary when you have your kid is older. Um, so my guess is we would find that that earlier data is not as good as even the observational study. But is it w- worth the exercise to do it? And I, the reason I'm asking is like the, this applies to other, like the big thing in our world right now in nutrition is dietary fat, right? So when I grew up as a kid, dietary fat was like, horrible. It was like poison, right? I mean, and my dad's a cardiologist, so we, did, we didn't have any fat anywhere in the house. And nowhere. I mean, like nothing. No fat. Said nothing. Fat free. Uh, but of course, we had like Skittles and Doritos and every other, yeah. you know, thing you could have. That would replace. Yeah. But, you know, now I think there's been sort of a reaction to that that sort of asks the question, well, was that recommendation, you know, was that based in, in science or was it? And there's been a big pushback. I think we're at the point today in that world, pre-RCT, where we have two sets of data and people argue over which set of mm-hmm. data is sort of more reliable. So I'm trying to understand maybe as an, as an exercise, if it would be worthwhile to go back and actually see what was different about the two data sets that led to the two recommendations. I think yes is the answer. It would be fun be to do. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to do it, yeah. but you could do it. No, I could do it. That would be interesting. I, it seems to me like it's an important thing, not necessarily because we're going to learn anything, but because we are in a world where we have lots of different sets of data of varying quality, none of it gold standard, none of it even close to gold standard. So how do we aggregate that? Or how do we choose between, let's say just simplest question, how do you choose between two observational studies? Right. How do you decide? How do you decide which one is the right one to pay attention to? Because you can't, you know, this is the thing where unlike surfing, where you have a choice not, or skiing, you have a choice not to do it. You don't have a choice not to eat. And, uh, and so I think, you know, for these things that we all have to do, you have to make a decision. Yeah. And I think what, I mean, what's striking about the peanut stuff for me is just that like in most of these things, my instinct is like probably one of these two sets of things is right, but actually probably the effects are small. So like, if you ask like, how important is it to eat fat or not eat fat? Probably the answer is like conditional on other things, like not being obese or whatever. Like probably it's kind of a little bit either direction and not huge. What's striking about the peanut thing is that it's the effects are so big that in the randomized trial, the effects were enormous. You would have thought that that would be obvious and observational data. And I think that's what's sort of surprising. Especially because it's such a simple and binary thing. Yeah. You either do it or you don't, right? Yeah. Whereas like people's recall and what they put in their body, what they terrible. eat is terrible. So you're not even going to really know what people are eating. No. Like, yeah. You know, even in like the best of these dietary recall things, you know, in these big studies, it's like people are reporting like 1300 calories a day. It's like, I don't think so, man. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, I've seen you. Well, and that goes back to my sort of, you know, one of my sort of rants about nutritional epidemiology. I mean, even if you believe the that the inputs are even remotely accurate, which no one does, yeah. then you're still left with all the confounding. Like, how do you possibly begin to account for all the different confounding? Like, and you talked about this a lot in your book about, you know, sort of, again, it goes back to the sort of flaws of observational data. Like, is it that, what were some of the examples you used? There was, um, oh, it was probably over breastfeeding, right? Like, is it that probably it's socioeconomic status yeah, or something? Yeah, it's education, yeah, yeah, it's all yeah, this other stuff, yeah. 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 Can we talk just for a minute about, because I didn't know that Jesse does media stuff, but I'm sort of interested in how the media tend to look at some of these studies. Obviously, we could talk for hours about the sort of wacky incentives of science, of researchers and scientists. And in some ways, people are incentivized to do the studies that are going to get the most attention. Yeah. And so like that's why we see 30,000 different egg studies, you know, with each yeah. of them with a different outcome. Yeah. But yet the media continue to respond to each one of them. And so that's why we have a new conversation about the same thing, like every two weeks. Is there anything that we can do? Anything you guys as economists can do about this or anything we can do as a medical community? I don't think so. I think this comes up a lot around, it comes up around parenting, it comes up around diet a lot. Like people are very into this, making these choices correctly. And I think that the, the, the media, you know, they're like, people to read their stuff. I mean, in some sense, some of my, I would describe some of my husband's work as kind of in the space of just saying like, you know, the media is responding to what people want. So he works on bias on sort of like whether newspapers sound like Republicans or sound like Democrats, like do they, you know, what kind of language do they use? And the argument that basically like what kind of language they use isn't about who owns them or the incentives of the newspaper is really just about like what, what the people living around them kind of want to, want to hear. 
And so I think in this case, like people like to, if they're interested in whether they should eat eggs. And so every time you publish a study about whether people should eat eggs, they, they read it. They read it. And I think the problem is that this, there's like sort of two stages of not enough caveats. There's the stage of writing the paper where I think even though often people will be like, well, limitation of the study could be that it is meaningless, you know, or like that this is just a correlation and like nothing, but it's just like a list of one of the limitations, you know, it's like, but uh, it, sometimes it's like, well, it's in fact, looking at your appendix tables, like, and see, not only is that a possibility, but like, that's definitely true. Your conclusion is definitely doesn't make any sense. And then in addition, we have the kind of media parsing of this, which mostly is pretty uncritical and is more interested in like a headline that says eggs are good or eggs are bad, as opposed to, you know, something more nuanced that would reflect the conclusions. So but neither thing is nuanced. Then. They feed themselves, right? I mean, in some ways it's a, and that's the problem. Yeah, it's, I don't see it. That one's a tough one. I don't know. How, I'm not sure how we're going to get out of it. Um, all right. I want to talk a little bit about your next book. Okay. Well, I think I know what you're going to write it on. Okay. What am I going to write it on? I don't know. I'm assuming you're going to write it on the next stage of parenting. Yeah. Because you're probably now at the stage of parenting where you understand that everything you thought was hard at the beginning, like the decision about whether to have a glass of wine when you were pregnant or... I know. I was a yeah. fool. That's what I learned. You're like, you're in those moments. Yeah. You you cannot imagine yeah. what is coming for you. Because to right. me, what's happened... So I have, a, you know, 15 and almost 13 year old daughters and like the degrees of freedom now are like, you know, exponential and, and the number of choices and the complication and like dealing with this other human being, you know, it's one thing to manipulate a two year old, you know, into getting dressed, putting socks on, but now like dealing with everything we're dealing with, like I need your next book. So I think that, um, that you're, you're right in the sense that if I write another book, it will be about this, the later, you know, not four to seven, but like kind of four to 18 or whatever. And, and trying to, I think the challenge is that there isn't, uh, anywhere near as much data about those things. So there are some things about which there is some data, like schools and stuff. So there's some stuff to do there. Many of the, of the kinds of things that I, you know, already come up a little bit for me that I imagine come up more much more for you, which are things like social media, like sort of all those things. We just don't have a lot of evidence. And so I'm trying to figure out if there's a way into, like, do we know enough to be able to say something? Or is there a way into a book that would sort of help people make some of those choices, even though they are ultimately sort of not something where data is going to be super helpful? So I don't know. I haven't, I haven't figured it out. Well, maybe it's as simple as trying to give people a framework, like we were talking about before, about how to balance the data and the preferences in some, I mean, cause it is, I think some of it is, well, you said you had a line in your book about how it's like, you couldn't imagine anything. You'd never had an experience in your life where you couldn't work your way out of it. Basically yeah. that you couldn't, um, and, and parenting for me, everything else in my life, internship pales in comparison to how difficult parenting has been. And, and sometimes it's just about getting comfort, right? Sometimes it's about someone telling you like, you know what, it is hard. And, that's okay. Like, yeah, and I think some of it is, and this is sort of what I realized in the in the last book is some of it is just telling people like think about your choice, make a choice, and then like live with it. Yeah. And don't I think part of what makes it hard a lot of these things hard is constantly second guessing like was that the right choice? Was that the right choice? And I think with with little kids stuff, it's easier in the sense of like once you have made the choice because many of these choices are fine. You know, once you like if you're sort of the challenge is not being comfortable, and once you've become comfortable, it's like okay, great, so now you're comfortable and like it's cool. I think with older kids, what I found is it's harder because if you've made the wrong choice, you get more feedback. I don't know. It's like harder to be confident because things are changing all the time and because the problems are just more complicated. Well, it is. And then you also compound it by wondering about what the decisions you make. My wife to this day will still like, you know, wonder about whether like that glass of wine she had when she was pregnant with our 15 year old is like impacting the re is the reason she's being an asshole. Right. It's us. not. No, no, of course not. But yeah. But like, no, but of yeah. course. Like, but you, but you go down the path of like trying to ascribe causality to everything, right? Like you want, uh, why are you being an asshole? Why are you being, yeah. right. No. And I think, I mean, yeah, parenting and older, older they get, it's like, oh my gosh, it's so much harder. It's yeah. It's a lot. It's a lot harder. And then there's the sort of element of like letting them out into the world, which is, you know, somewhat terrifying and now she's at an age where she's about to start driving a car and like, you know, probably I'm getting just into... holding out for self-driving cars. By yeah. the time my eight-year-olds, yeah. I feel like they just, they have eight more years to get yeah. self-driving cars. And <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, there's this whole, like the social thing becomes a lot more complicated than like Johnny stole my toy. It's Emma and 
chain we're vaping, right? Like, you know, that stuff, which gets crazy. And, um, yeah, I do not look forward to that. No, yeah. I I mean, look, we all, it's been done. That's the other comfort I have in all this, right? It's been done forever. Mm -hmm. We all managed, like, I go back and look at my life as an adolescent and as a teenager and think like, I shouldn't be here. Like there were some things I did that were so incredibly stupid. And my parents were so stupid in letting, you know, they let me and my 15 year old sister live alone at the beach. <laughs> How alone. old were you? I was 16. Nice. We lived by ourselves at the beach and like worked at like a amusement park and like the amount of drugs and sex and everything going on. And I mean, my kid's 15, like she's not going to live by no, herself at the no. beach. No, but I mean, I think that there is like, but then you you kind of the flip of this is people are like you know we're like we're protecting our kids too much you know and that that like our expectations you know I I mean I deal with this like with kids my my daughter's age feel like can she walk home from school by herself it's like two blocks and you know people like well I'm not sure you know you let the kid walk home two blocks two blocks one one street crossing guard okay like this is you know somebody is at home waiting like this is not like a high stakes dangerous situation the governor lives on our block like it's yeah. like a very light experience and i'm you know when i was in first grade i think i walked home a mile the crossing guards you know just like and nobody thought of that but i think we we've sort of moved way in the direction of of kind of protection and the question of you know is there a space between like your nine-year-old can't walk home from school three blocks and like i'm living alone at the beach vaping and like, you know, doing drugs, like where is the line? It probably is somewhere between those things. Well, and you, um, both my sister and I turned out okay. I mean, despite that, and in some ways it was probably not just in spite of it, it was probably because of it. Yeah, I mean, there was probably, a piece of it that was yeah. because of it. But of course, like, you know, some of the people probably just do many drugs and then you're kind of. Well, and we get the same thing, you know, my little one who's legally blind, we, we let her take the bus or walk home from school. She's almost 13 and people think we're insane, but you know, we've taught her how to do it and, uh, she's going to have to learn how to function in the world. It's not like her vision's going to get any better. It's, you know, it's part of, part of the deal. No. And I think, you know, encouraging independence is a thing that is hard, is in some ways hard for, hard for us. I mean, it's hard for parents. Well, and then the other thing that comes up from time to time, and this is like the, I'm fascinated by this. Like we always romanticize the past. So social media is a big part of mm-hmm. teenage life. And I've heard. Yeah. And I think partly because I didn't grow up with it, it occupies a bigger space in my brain. But people have made the point that like, you know, when we were kids, we spent the entire night on the telephone. Like there's, mm-hmm. it's not, I mean, there's a sort of element of like, is it really any different than they're, that they're sending each other texts? Obviously there's that sort of potential problem of photographs and like you want them to be respectful and not like be sending around nude selfies and stuff like that. But, but for the most part, like if they're just, this is their form of communication. Is it so bad? I'm really just trying to ask myself like, yeah, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, is it like, you know, it's sort of like, Oh, kids are feeling bad about themselves. Yeah. But like, I feel bad. We didn't have any social media. I felt terrible about myself right. most of the time. Yeah. So I'm not sure that like, like, is it going to be worse? Like, would it have been worse if there was Instagram? I don't know. It was pretty bad. <laughs> I yeah. don't know if it would have been worse. Okay. Last thing, cause I want to be respectful of your time. So let, let me just get your thought. Oh, obviously nutrition is super important to me. Weight loss is important to me and behavior change are important to me. So, uh, you know, I made this, I think when we spoke on the phone, I made you, I made you this argument that one of the things one of my guesses about why we've done so poorly in weight loss programs is that we don't give people information that they can use to act on. And so one of the things that was exciting for me about sort of what we're doing is that you're giving people information that is more actionable to them. And I just would love to hear you kind of riff on that a little bit if you have any ideas about sort of, or maybe even just your thoughts on where we are with weight loss and how people process information about nutrition and all this other stuff. Yeah. I mean, so this is something I work on a little bit also and sort of th- thinking about, I think a lot of my work is pretty destructive in the sense of just saying, basically, we look at at data on like, you know, what happens after people seem to be like diagnosed with medical conditions, metabolic things like diabetes, like basically their diets change very, very little. And so people's diets are super, super sticky. And I think that just enhances the challenge of like, how do we help people improve their diets since they seem to kind of like, there's like a tremendous amount of habit formation. Like we have a lot of evidence from different things that like in in the space of what I would call people like the food they grew up with. Like if you grow up with Folgers coffee instead of Maxwell House, like it turns out like you will keep buying Folgers coffee even when you move to an area of the country where they have Maxwell House. Okay, but that like extends to, you know, if you grow up eating a lot of Doritos, like you like Doritos and then you'll keep eating Doritos hard not to eat Doritos. You know, you grow up with you grow up eating a lot of vegetables like you probably that's like setting you up 
positively for vegetables. But of course, the people who need to lose weight are like different from, you know, the people who grew up eating the eating the Doritos. And so I do have some instinct, but again, I'm not sure how, how database this is, that part of what's hard for people about these kind of things is just that there's like too much to, to do, that many kinds of diets or weight loss strategies have a tremendous, like require you to think about them all the time. Too much choice or too much... Too much mental energy. Uh, like people are, yeah. people are like yeah. tired. They're trying yeah. to do other stuff. I mean, it comes, it's like yeah. true in parenting also, right? Like, you know, we're telling people to do 50 different things. Here's like, do this, boil the formula water, like, do, you know, do this, use this pillow, put them to sleep like this, wake them up like this. It's like people don't, there's only 24 hours in a day. And I think that, that in some ways these, these diet things are like, you know, cook, cook this meal, cook this quinoa, do, do this, do that. It's like people are, they're busy. They don't, you know, they don't have, and, and thinking at every meal about exactly what is the, what am I supposed to do with this meal? I think that's, I think that's hard. And I would argue for sort of simple, like simple solutions. Yeah. I love that. And I actually think you're right. I think it's impossible. I mean, it's part of the reason why, like, I don't want to pick on Weight Watchers, but if you look at what you're asking people to do in tracking everything you put in your mouth, that's just not going to be sustainable. Yeah. That that's definitely true. There's going to be, it has to be simple and it has to be sustainable because if it's not sustainable, then you're never going to you're just not going to do it or you'll come back to doing it because the evolutionary power for us to, to gain weight is much stronger than the opposite, right? We didn't evolve. We didn't get here because we were bad at mean finding and keeping energy. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you and I talked, when you and I talked to you, you talked about this issue of like sort of people not understanding what it is to be hungry. When you think about diets, so many of them are just about like, how can you lose weight without ever being hungry as opposed to, to saying like, well, sometimes you're just going to be hungry. Yeah. While you're losing weight. Yeah, that was, we talked about that in the context of fasting. And I think, you know, um, fasting is the way I just got back or I didn't get back. The American Diabetes Association had their meetings in San Francisco in June. And, you know, the fasting session was like the overflow room was overflowed. Like there were, um, there were literally like there was, I've never seen anything like it at a scientific meeting. There were so many people there and they, there were three really great talks. But to me, one of the things that's underexplored is this sort of relearning a sense of being hungry. Cause you know, you described it really well in your book and in the context of breastfeeding, like you felt like you were starving Penelope, like, you know, when, cause you didn't have enough milk or yeah. something. And like, you know, the reality is she wasn't going to starve and like, they terrify you that if she loses two ounces or whatever, you're going to like, she's dead and she's not, like not yeah. and, but we do really condition our kids at a very young age to not tolerate hunger. And I wonder like, that's just not biological. Right. And I think part of what you, you know, part of what you then don't understand, which I think people, people struggle with is like, you know, if you're hungry, you don't just keep getting hungrier and hungrier right. until you die, right. which I think is what sometimes people have a sense. Like if I'm hungry now, if I don't eat, I'll just get hungrier and hungrier. And then sometime in the middle of the afternoon, I'll just drop dead. Yeah. You know, it's like, actually, that's not really how it's going to work. You're not, you know, you eventually like, I mean, of course, if you never, if you never eat, then you will be, you know, you will be hungry, but like, it's not, you know, this is hunger is like a, a thing which cycles and it's, it's like your body is telling you, you know, I guess that you should eat, but it's not telling you like, if you don't eat, you're going to die right away. Right. And the language we use, I'm starving. Right. I mean that. So you're not starving. Yeah, no, you're not. This, you're not starving. Yeah. And I've had starving. the conversation. That's what that is. I've had that conversation with my kids who will yeah. tell me like, I'm, I'm starving. starving. Like that's not what that means. <laughs> and I will say to them like, how long is the longest that somebody has lived without food? And they'll say like, I don't know, six hours. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's like, no, it's 380 <laughs> days. Like you can actually. It's not like, six hours. No, it's not six it's not hours. Six you are hours. not going to die in the yeah. next six hours. You're going to be fine. Yeah, no, but I think we, with the snacks and the, you know, like you sort of get, you know, just it's, it's, there's no, in, we have no instinct to just tell our kids when they say I'm hungry to just be like, all right, well, dinner's in a few hours. Like, you know, have some water, have some water. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That might help. Well, and the other thing is to prepare people. And that's one of the reasons why, like, I'm not sure we're doing an RCT on fast, on time restricted eating. And that should, we'll get the, you know, answer, at least some of the answers on that soon. I, you know, I'm not, I have no idea what's going to, you know, what, what that will accomplish in terms of, you know, improving people's metabolic health or losing weight may or may not work. But one thing it has definitely accomplished, you know, somebody who's tried it is it teaches you that hunger is not linear, right? That it doesn't go straight up and that you can survive that sense of starvation and be okay. And so, you know, not that you want to be uncomfortable or feel hungry. It's an uncomfortable feeling, but you do understand. Whereas like the difference of like, I have to pee. Yeah. So at some point, 
Like, you're just yeah, going to pee. It does go up and down like a little bit. Like you'll be like, I'm really going to pee. I'm going to pee in my pants. And then like, you're like, uh, I'm going to make it. But at some point you are going to pee in your pants. Yeah. yeah. That's different, right? Like that's, and, th- and those are the two things like as parent, as a young parent, that's those are the two things you're like talking to your kids about. Yeah. Like, so, um, yeah. So that one is a, um, and I do think like there's not, it's interesting. One of the claims that people make on this low carb diet that uh, low carb high fat diet is that there's less hunger. I think that's something that has to be studied, but to me, that's one of the compelling reasons why maybe that diet is, is different mm-hmm. um, because maybe there's something more kind of intrinsically satiating about fat, or maybe there's something about carbohydrate that might stimulate hunger. I mean, it's hard to know exactly, but that's sort of one of the areas that people get caught up in the diet wars is like, uh, maybe there's like less hunger. Having less hunger is good, obviously, but then also learning how to tolerate hunger is is also good. But then I, I also do maintain that we have to give people better tools and, as you mentioned, more real-world and sustainable tools that can help them. I just don't think we can say today that it's impossible to change behavior. I think there needs to be more conversations between the sort of social science, like the kind of what are people's lives like side of this and the kind of what is the medically – like, what would you do if you had people in, you know, in like staying in your weight loss clinic? Like, what would be the there's like sort of one answer, to like, what's the right thing there? And there's another answer to what is the right thing when people have, you know, they're working three jobs and like they don't have time to cook kale. Right. Like, which is, you know, how do you make that? How do you bridge that? Which is why I try not to get too caught up in the I mean, look, as a scientist, like if I'm going to do those experiments, I'm going to do them in mice because because yeah. <laughs> that's like and look, I. It doesn't mean, I, I certainly don't mean to be critical of my colleagues who do these amazing studies in metabolic wards where they put people, you know, in a hotel for a month. We do learn a lot about, yes, we do. but we don't learn a lot about how humans are going to be able to behave outside of that environment. It's imbo- you know, somebody preparing every meal for you and handing it to you and measuring it and all that stuff is just not going to work. That's yeah, why rich people can be thin. Yeah. This, right? It's like if somebody's usually like deliver like portioned, correctly portioned meals to your house. It, like that's like that's a much easier way to lose weight. I thought about doing that experiment actually. I thought about trying to partner with like one of the meal delivery companies. It got really expensive pretty yeah, quickly, and then that's because it's for rich right, people. That's, right. that's, right. <laughs> that's what that is. Yeah, it is. But it's a way of sort of a hybrid between doing this sort of like inpatient metabolic ward yeah. studies versus real world studies. But all right, well, listen, this has been so much fun. I cannot thank you enough for doing it. Thank you so much. It's yeah, been great. I can't wait for the next book. Yeah, all right. Me too. Emily was the first economist I have spoken with on Best Known Method. She will not be the last. In many ways, the things I have thought about most over the past five years derive from the work of economists, specifically Danny Kahneman and Amy Tversky. So many of the world's greatest challenges can be traced to human behavior, and their insights into how we think, and especially how we trick ourselves, were transformational for me as I thought about ways to approach health-related behaviors. While Emily is not a behavioral economist, her work and her writing has also been transformational and is in many ways even more relevant to the specific question of how we make decisions with less than perfect information. Those of you paying attention will notice that this conversation was largely unedited and uninterrupted. And no, we have not changed the format. Rather, we thought the discussion stood alone and required no added commentary, clarification, or editing. Emily's work embodies everything I think about when I think about best-known method. And in many ways, parenting is the perfect analog to nutrition. In fact, I like to remind people that there are two biological processes that are absolutely necessary to the survival of all living organisms. Number one, the ability to reproduce. And number two, the ability to find, store, and utilize energy. So I hope you enjoyed, and I hope you were as struck by the parallels as I was. I know that I will certainly be taking the parenting examples I've learned from Emily and applying them to my own nutrition. This is Best Known Method.